Psalms 130. And now I'm going to read the whole chapter. Eight verses. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we just come and we give thanks to you for who you are. Lord, that we get to come together and celebrate salvation, and celebrate redemption that is given in your son Jesus. And just as we were singing, Lord, that our sins are great, but your mercies are so much more. And so we thank you. Thank you for the confidence that we get to have in Christ. And I just pray as we go through this passage this morning, that we would be left just with hearts that are full and encouraged in the Lord, and that you are glorified, and that we are worshiping because of who you are. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So, uh, it's good to be back again, getting to share with you all. And as Mark said earlier, we've just finished our high school week at camp. And it's one of the most tiring weeks of the summer. Because the high schoolers stay up later than elementary kids. And so, yeah, we're, we're all still catching up on sleep. But, as I tell the counselors at the end of every week... As they go into the weekend, I tell them they need to get rest over the weekend, which is kind of funny. You know, they usually don't. Um, but then reminding them that this upcoming week, again, is these kids' first week of camp. So for our counselors, it's going into week six. And so their physical stamina may be wearing down. But uh, for the kids who are coming, it's their first week, and so we want to be ready. And so we just appreciate so much your prayers for us as we continue to serve the kids that are coming, and just sharing Christ with them. As I was thinking about what to share for this morning, um, this psalm has just been on my heart for a few weeks now, and so I just thought I would just walk through it with you guys, gave me an excuse to study it a little more thoroughly, so that's always good. And the, the start of it is just this tone of desperation, you know, out of the depths, O oh Lord, I cry to you. And when I was thinking about desperation, you know, this week I read about the founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, and I don't know how to say his last name, uh, and that he is the richest man in the world. He is the first man ever to have over $100 billion. He has $130 billion. Uh, and the, the article tried to put that in perspective because I have no idea how much money that actually is. Like, how do, you, how do you comprehend what that looks like? And so the person writing the article, they said, so the, the thought that goes into the average American spending a dollar, for Jeff, it's about $88,000. 
And I'm thinking, okay, so me deciding whether or not to buy a Coke from the soda machine, you know, for him, that's 88 grand. Like, it's just not a big deal. You know, this is just, it's just cheap, you know, no, no thought to it. Uh, and thinking about the reality that that man does not feel desperate for money. Hopefully not. Uh, he doesn't feel desperate. He, he, I'm sure he feels desperate in other things. Um, but when it comes to finances, he doesn't. And desperation is not something that we enjoy feeling, uh, having a, a dependency, a need that we know that we simply can't satisfy. We can't just meet it on our own. No one likes being desperate. And yet, the psalmist here, this is one of the psalms of ascent, and so as they go up to Jerusalem, as they travel the road in order to celebrate whatever feast that they're about to celebrate, uh, they would sing different psalms on their way. And so this, the heading here, it's one of the songs of ascent. And as the Israelite, as the Jew would travel to Israel for the feast, he's acknowledging his desperation. It's desperation for the Lord. And so he starts off in verse 1, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. And this imagery of being in, I think, the bottom of a sea. You know, he's out, out of the depths, in the bottom of the ocean. Uh, if you've ever seen somebody who is drowning or thinks they're drowning... They are desperate people, right? They're flailing around, and, and lifeguards sometimes are trained like, hey, sometimes you have to actually knock somebody out in order to save their life. Yeah, because in their desperation, they can be flailing. They can prevent themselves from being saved. But they're desperate. They know if nothing else changes, then I am not going to make it out of the situation. So they're reaching for anything, and they're trying with all their might to keep themselves above the water. Because this is their only hope. If something doesn't happen, then I'm done for. This sense of desperation. And so, out of the depths, I've cried to you, O Lord. The psalmist is desperate. He knows that something has to be done because he can't save himself. He can't fix his own problem, whatever the situation is. But what is it that he's praying for? You know, in verse 2, he says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. And so he's requesting something from the Lord. As he ascends to Jerusalem, he's desperate, he knows that he's needy, and he has a specific request, a supplication that he's making. And so this is what it is, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? He says... God, if you marked out people for their sins, then nobody could stand before you. And what does he mean when he says, if you mark iniquities? And the, the image that comes to my mind is growing up with two older brothers, this happened to me a lot, uh, that something had happened in the home, and so my dad would scan the room, and he'd ask probing questions, and then he would mark out the guilty person. And oftentimes it was me because my brothers somehow were older and could contrive stories so that I always got in trouble. Um, but, but he scans her in that sense of dread that a child feels 
when they know they're guilty, and like the guilt is bad enough, but then when the parent actually points the finger at them and says, I know it was you. And as a, as a child or an adult, you just feel, oh no, I've been found out. Like, this is my, my lot in life, and I'm done for. And he says, Lord, if you mark iniquities, when you scan the room and you say, you're guilty, you're guilty of sin, you're guilty of iniquities. And the psalmist says, if you do that, Lord, nobody can stand. That every single person is going to be said to be guilty, guilty, guilty. Because all of us fall into that that category. That all of us fall into sin, are identified as sinners. And I think of the the parable of the the king and the two debtors. Uh, And there's the one man who owes a great debt to the king. And so he pleads with the king, forgive my debt. The king's going to make him pay through jail time and punish him for, for owing such a huge amount. And the man says, please forgive my debt. I'm sorry for what I've done. And so then the king says, you know what, your debt is forgiven. Uh, but then there's the next man who owes the first man a debt that's much smaller. And the one who had been forgiven much then holds the second man to pay up for his small debt. And, and as he's requiring it of him, the king hears about the situation and he goes to the man who he had just forgiven from this huge debt and he says, I forgave you so much. How can you not forgive somebody else so little? But that in both cases, the two men, when they are called to pay for their debt, they're on their knees and they're pleading, please have mercy on me. Show me forgiveness. You're, you're marking me out for my debt and I can't pay it. Won't you please forgive me? And so uh, that's the, the sense that we get here is the psalmist, he's crying out and he says, Lord, forgive me. Uh, who can stand if you mark a man for his iniquities? That there's nowhere else that we can go. We're like those at the bottom of the sea with no hope. We can't save ourselves. There's only one place that we can look. If you flip over to Romans chapter 3, thinking about the, the reality that all, none can stand if the Lord chooses to mark iniquities. In Romans 3, starting in verse 10, he says, There is none who is righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is no one who seeks for God. Verse 18, he says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says, all the world will become accountable to God. There's none who does righteous, who is righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good who seeks after the Lord and who fears the Lord, he says, in the whole world, this is everyone's plight. That everyone is desperate. That if the Lord chooses to mark man for his sin, then no one can stand. 
And so in this place of desperation, we have this, this contrasting statement. Verse 4, But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. And it's interesting, one of the things that, that happens is when we, when we see something as being very familiar we start to think that it loses significance or that's a big deal. So this is the case with precious stones. You know, the reason there's something that makes them precious is that they're rare. It's hard to find them, so you have to spend a lot of money to be able to get a precious stone. And if they were really common, then they wouldn't be as significant. They wouldn't be as important. And here in the Psalms, Scripture tells us, the Lord tells us, that sin is really prevalent. Like, it's everywhere. Everybody is guilty of sin, that there's none who can stand. And the temptation in our flesh is to say, oh, sin, it's really common. You know what that means? It's not a big deal. Everybody does it. You know, and how many, how many times do we hear that? Do we think that, you know, that, yeah, this is, I know this isn't of the Lord. This isn't honoring the Lord. This isn't done in the fear of the Lord. But, you know what? It could be worse. And every, so many other people live lives that are worse than this. And so because sin is so familiar, we don't think that it's significant. And yet the psalmist here, when he recognizes that sin is everywhere and that nobody can stand before the Lord, it doesn't diminish the severity of sin in the eyes of the Lord for the psalmist. He recognizes just because this is everywhere doesn't mean it's not a big deal. It means it's an even bigger deal. That God is justified to condemn the whole world. That there's no exception. And so just because it's familiar, it's normal, it's common, doesn't mean that it's not significant. And he promises, though, that there is forgiveness. That with the Lord there is forgiveness. There's something known that coincides with humanity's guilt. That it doesn't just stay there. The Lord doesn't just say the world is guilty and that's the end. And we thank the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that it isn't just we're all guilty. But that as we flail from the depths of the sea, he says there is a way for life. And the way of life is the one who can deal with sin. He says, with the Lord there is forgiveness. And so there's nowhere else to go. You know, and, and we get this in terms of salvation and, okay, I can't deliver myself from the bondage of sin in a sense of I need to be forgiven and, and become a child of God and pray to receive Christ. But there's this, there should be a similar desperation in the day-to-day living with sin. That as we wrestle with the flesh, recognizing that just as desperate as I am for Christ, for salvation, I am equally desperate for Christ in my sanctification. That apart from Christ, I really can do nothing. And so he cries out, and he says that with the Lord there is forgiveness. That... As he's going up to Jerusalem to make sacrifices, uh, to, to be acquitted of his sin, to cover his sin through the blood of sheep and goats, he says, 
where the Lord there is forgiveness. This is why he's coming. Because he needs forgiveness. And the only place to find that is in Jerusalem, is in the presence of the Lord. And so the question is, why is it though that God does forgive? Because he doesn't have to. Why is it that God forgives sins? And there's a lot of, I think, elements that we could, ways that we could look at that, and there's a number of different answers. It's not just one. Uh, There's a number of things, ultimately for his glory, but there's other factors. His love, his desire for us to be sons and daughters of God. But he mentions one reason here. At the end of verse 4, he says, There's forgiveness with you. How come? So that you may be feared. So that you may be feared. The Lord is the only one who can forgive sins. So, the result should be that the Lord is feared. And a a common topic in, in politics today in the last number of years is this whole discussion of big government versus small government. Uh, And there's genuine, legitimate concerns with the idea of a big government. The more control that government has, the more say that they have in the day-to-day function of a person's life. And so there's reservations about government getting too big. We have reservations about companies becoming a monopoly. Because if they have full authority then there's nowhere else for people to turn for their services. If all of, just for the current situation, if all of healthcare is done by one single government, then all the people are at the mercy of what the government decides to do with that healthcare. And so there's this concern that if all the power is in one place, then everybody depends on that one entity. And so we don't like that, because in a fallen world, that's scary, because leaders can make really bad and selfish decisions. But when it comes to forgiveness of sins, that's the situation. There's a monopoly on forgiveness, that we can't go anywhere else to be forgiven. We can't go anywhere else to deal with our sin, that even if we have a moment of salvation, still in the next day of our lives, it's the same situation that we can't go anywhere else to have sin dealt with other than to the one who can forgive. The one who can overcome, who has overcome. And so, God wants us to acknowledge that this is the reality that we live in. And as we recognize that there's nowhere else to go for forgiveness, I think in our hearts it results in this reverence for the Lord, this fear of the Lord. Lord, you're my only hope. I can't turn to anyone else. That only in Him can we find forgiveness. And so we, the result is the fear of the Lord. If He doesn't forgive our sins, if He doesn't strengthen us for today, there's no backup plan. We try to make backup plans. Uh, and we put all kinds of things in our lives to try to keep us from sinning. Scripture speaks to that. Jesus speaks to that. If your eye calls you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand calls you to stumble, cut it off. He says, be intentional and proactive in the battle against the flesh, but recognizing in all of that, that apart from Christ, we can still do nothing. And that still, even with all of our 
safeguards that we can put in our lives to keep ourselves from sin that without Christ it's impossible. That there's no one else who can forgive, no one else who can deal with sin besides God himself. And so there's this sense of desperation. We keep coming back to that. That in our hearts, in our walks with Christ, we are to be a desperate people. Knowing that there is no one else to turn to and nothing else to turn to for life, for deliverance. And so, as God could easily demand an accounting, and He, he does, and He puts that on Christ, we know that He's also the God who forgives sin. And so we come and we request forgiveness. We don't go to the post office to get a loan because the post office doesn't do that. They don't have any money. Uh, But we go to the bank because it's at the bank where we can get a loan. We don't go anywhere else to deal with sin because nothing else is going to deal with it. Only God himself. When addressing sin in our lives, we don't have options of where to go. You can't go to a spiritual leader to deal with your sin. You can't go to your spouse to deal with your sin. Family members, close friends, elders in a church, they can't deal with your sin. They can't fix it. But Christ says, come to me. I've dealt with it. And I continue to show you the victory that you have in me. So we keep coming back to the one who can deal with it. Flip over to Acts chapter 15. God has clearly established himself as the authority, the one, the one stop when it comes to sin in our lives. And he wants us to know that as we come to him, there is forgiveness. In chapter 15, verse 8, it says, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, talking about the Gentiles, just as he also did to us, the Jews. And God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. God is the one who cleanses hearts. Isaiah 45 has been a a verse I have come back to throughout this summer, over the last six months even, that is just so clear to me of the desperation of our lives and the answer to that desperation being God himself. Isaiah 45, starting verse 21, it says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. It's really simple. There's just no other option. 
that we get worn out because we keep looking for other options and trying other things. And the Lord consistently reminds us, gently reminds us, firmly reminds us. He says, I am the Lord, I am the Savior, and there is no one else. So stop trying to drink from broken cisterns. Keep coming back to me. And so as back in Psalm 130, he's recognized his desperate plight, his need for forgiveness. He knows that there's only one place to go for that forgiveness, for that deliverance from his sin. And so now what do we do? We know that God's the only answer, that Christ is the only way, that he is the way and the truth and the life. So now what? As we wrestle with with sin and guilt, he says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in His word do I hope. I'm really bad at waiting. It's it's not my spiritual gift. Uh, You know, if if things are running late, it's always a test of my sanctification. It reminds me of this whole sinfulness in my heart thing. And... And yet, so oftentimes, this is the Lord's call in our lives. Wait. Wait on me. But Lord, I want to do something. Right? This is part of what makes me American, is I want to do something. I want to fix it. He says, wait. Wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. How can I wait? feel like if I'm not doing, then I'm wasting opportunity. He says, you wait because your hope is not in your doing. But instead, your hope is in the word of the Lord. How does a psalmist know that the Lord is the one who has forgiveness, who gives forgiveness? How does he know that all the world is guilty of sin? How does he know these things? Well, because I think he's looked at the Word. He doesn't have the full Bible, the full Scriptures at this point, but that which he does have, he's heard the Word of the Lord, and he knows that from the very beginning, God's made it really clear that there's no other place for salvation, that man is in a mess, and man needs a deliverer. And so we wait, waiting on the Word that he's promised uh, that he's going to deal with his sin. And so our powerlessness over sin should make us desperate. We can't overcome it. But God's word should make us confident. We're powerless over sin, but we are confident in the one who's going to deal with it, who does deal with it, who overcomes the temptation in our lives. He provides a way of escape in every situation. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our means of escape. That He is our strength in temptation. And so the Lord is our confidence. What He's promised in His Word. So in the midst of our desperation, there is hope that God is moving, that He is active. 
He goes on in verse 6 and he says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. And there's two aspects of this idea of this watchman that I, I think he's getting at. And one, the watchman is waiting for the morning because for the watchman, the nighttime is a, the most unnerving time. As he stands on the city walls and stands in the watchtower, he's looking out and if it's dark out, he's, there's much more likelihood that a thief or a robber or an army is going to be able to sneak in and just get really close before he realizes it because it's dark. So the watchman is waiting eagerly for the light to come because then there is relief to the anxiety that he feels or the desperation that he feels. I'm helpless to see if anybody's coming because it's dark out. So he waits longingly for the light. When the sun starts to come up, then ah, that pressure, there's that relief. I can see so much more clearly. And as we stand before the Lord... In our guilt, we say, Lord, it's dark. Like there's, I, I can't deal with this. But then the light of God's forgiveness comes. And there's relief. The weight of sin is lifted because of the forgiveness of our God. And the other element to this is that as the watchman waits for the Lord, you know, he had just referenced hope in the word. He says, the watchman waits for the morning. And the watchman doesn't wonder whether or not the sun is going to come up. He knows it's coming. It does every day. That nobody can keep it from coming up. And so he waits for the morning with confident certainty that the morning is coming. He says, in a similar way, we wait for forgiveness, or we know with absolute certainty that forgiveness is coming. Forgiveness is made available by the Lord. It's not a question of, is it actually going to happen? But we know for sure that it is a reality because God has promised it in his word. That today, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Christ from the dead, then you are forgiven. It's not something that we wonder about, but it's as sure as the watchman waiting for the sun to come up. He knows it's coming. There's confidence there. You know, it's, it's amazing that now we can, we can track our packages. I was thinking earlier uh, this morning that, like, we, I so rarely got things throughout the year. But now as an adult, I get to open gifts all the time. I buy them myself, but it's still fun that I get to open them all the time. Uh, and, and yet now that we can track our packages, when you purchase something... I haven't done this on my phone because I'm, I'm just behind the times. I'm not a huge fan of all the things you can do on your phone. Uh, but, but you can track your packages so that you get a notification. Oh, my package is in Phoenix. And then the next day, oh, now it's in San Antonio. Oh, it's been delivered. Right? And it's not this question of, is my package going to come? But you know it's there. You know where it's at and you know it's coming. And then when you realize it's at your house, then you know when you get home, you get to enjoy that. He says our confidence in the Lord's forgiveness is so much greater than that. We are forgiven. It's not a question of whether or not the Lord forgives sins. 
It's certainty. We can be confident in a lot of things, but in our flesh, in the, the devil's attacks, we are quick to question. I know the Lord forgives this person. I know He forgives these sins. You know, one of the questions that so often comes up at camp that counselors hear from campers is a question about suicide. Does the Lord forgive that sin? And there's no sin that we commit that can remove God's forgiveness. That if Christ really does die on the cross in order to forgive sins, he doesn't say some sins, but he says to forgive sins. There's not exceptions there. And so we cannot remove ourselves from Christ's forgiveness. It's an absolute like getting to track our package coming. We know where it's at. Like the reality that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. It's coming. It's a reality. Forgiveness is at hand. And so that's the way that we wait. That's the way that we, we handle uh, the, the reality of sin. Is that it's not with only despair. It's not, it's not with despair, but it's with desperation. I can't deliver myself from my sin. And it's with certainty, with hope that Christ does. Verse 7, he goes on and he changes now from just referencing himself to then talking to all of Israel. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And it's interesting that he, he previously said that he hopes in the word of the Lord. But it seems interchangeable. And now he says hope in the Lord. Because the word of the Lord, the Bible itself, is not our hope. But it's what the Bible testifies of. What God has revealed in his word. He reveals himself. And so we hope in the word because the word brings us to Christ. We hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. Two things that are with the Lord loving kindness and redemption. That the Lord doesn't begrudge having to forgive sin, He delights in it. That when my kids come to me and they acknowledge something that they've done that's wrong, and you see the guilt in their eyes and the shame that they feel. And in my heart, I am delighting in forgiving them. I see the burden they carry. And I say, it's okay. I love you. And the Lord is so much better than I am. The Lord loves his children. And he lavishes his grace and his mercy. It's not an obligation. It's not a burden for him. With the Lord there is loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. You know, it's hard to imagine how redemption can be abundant. I think something's either redeemed or it's not. Are there really degrees of redemption? But I think the psalmist's point here is 
again that, that there's abundant redemption, that the Lord is quick and eager to redeem, to forgive, to bring to life. Verse 8, he closes and he says, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Not some, not just the really bad ones or the ones that aren't so bad, but all. Past, present, future. That's what the Lord redeems us from. That's what his forgiveness takes away. And it is absolute. Loving kindness and redemption accompany God. They're not the goal. The goal is not God's love and the goal is not God's redemption. The goal is God himself enjoying him. And as we have a relationship with him, we get to enjoy his love and redemption. And so we have our hope in the Lord. You know, as, as we find ourselves in a place of desperation. I think the Lord wants us to always feel desperate when it comes to our sin. This in, in the way that we, we know that we're powerless in ourselves. And as we feel desperate, as we feel needy and weak, we go to the place where we can find strength. The one who strengthens our hearts. The one who gives us the grace to walk through whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And so I have just really appreciated this psalm uh, in the last, last few weeks and am grateful to the Lord that He is a certain hope, that He is an absolute Redeemer. And I don't have to go anywhere else. We don't have to look somewhere else for security. Jeff Bezos, he has all the security financially that you would think a person would need, and yet we have greater security. There is more certainty in a God who loves his children. There's more certainty in a God who forgives than there is in a really big bank account. There's more life in Christ than there is in being able to purchase whatever we want. We're having whatever securities we, we think we need outside of finances. The securities of future, the securities of my family is going to be a certain way and turn out the way that I want. All these things that we want to know for sure. And God says, this is what you can know for sure. Like the sun rising in the morning, there's forgiveness. There's redemption. There's loving kindness. So find refuge in Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Again, it is not on account of, of all that we are bringing to the table, but just the reality that you are a good and gracious and merciful and loving Father. We thank you for the gift of salvation in Christ that our sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. And that that is not just true of our past sins, but 
the, the things that we wrestle with today. And I pray that we would not make light of our sin, Lord, that just because it is so common around us and in us, I pray that we would continue to, to be pleading uh, in desperation and, and just coming to you knowing that you are the only one who can strengthen us for today and that you promise to do so. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.